0: Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio and the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number Forty Three and the Good Beer Seal. We're talking about the special Spiegelau Stout glass. We got Justin Phillips from Beer Table with us. How you doing, Justin? I'm well, thanks, Jimmy. All right, it's great to have you back on the show. So last night we sat with uh, the guys from Spiegelau, Rogue, and, and Left Hand, and we got to uh, preview the new Stout glass. What did you think about that?
2: It was pretty great. It was nice to see the the second evolution of this thing uh, of Spiegelau beer glass, and uh, I really enjoyed the. Taste.
1: I mean, you're, you're really like one of the tastemakers in the city. You know, with your beer table, restaurant, you, you were doing things like specific glasses for, for special beers long before anyone else. So tell us a little bit about what glassware means to you as, as a, a specialty beer bar owner.
2: Um, I've just been an experimenter with glasses and just really enjoyed trying a lot of different things with a lot of different beers and kind of enjoying the failures and the su- successes of that. So That's great. I Matt. just think it's really important to use good glassware and to be conscious of it, not just dump it in a bucket, as we were talking about last night. And, and Matt's from Spiegelau, USA. You, you helped develop
1: the, the IPA glass and, and now the stout glass. And uh, give us a little background on that.
3: Uh, Well, the impetus of the new glass shapes and designs is really a result of trying to match at a glass level the quality of what's being brewed in the United States currently. It's extremely high level, extremely high quality product, extremely diverse in aromas and flavors. And until we really got actively involved, there really wasn't a excellent glass to bring forth those uh, characteristics in beer
1: and uh, so Matt you work with with two brewers uh, you work with Brett from uh, Rogue and Eric from Left Hand so why don't you guys introduce yourself and say a little bit about uh, the the Stout Glass project
4: yeah uh, this is brett from rogue the stout glass project for for us at rogue was a was a really fun project and it was a it was a no-brainer when when matt called and asked if we were interested simply because we admired what they had done with the ipa glass and we thought that with our stouts we thought that uh, we could do something where uh, we make beautiful stouts and those beautiful stouts should have a beautiful beer glass so that was the that was the mission i think we we accomplished that all right and you guys have been known
1: as like as like rebels so from the beginning you know your, your dad founded rogue and you have some good friends that work there Sebby bueller and uh, claire goggins you stole her from new york um what is it about about rogue and just tell us what you, why you guys are, are doing what you do that makes you guys different than everybody else
4: yeah i think for us the the name rogue defines us it's really quite simple that way so we we look at the world and say if other people are already doing something then by definition a rogue wouldn't do it spiritually i say that we try to appeal to the rogue that they're in a lot of people out there you you mentioned Sebby bueller she's the the character on the chocolate style bottle that we have Sebby's a a rogue and so there's a lot of people out there in the world that uh that either are rogues or they they want to be rogues they want to break out of the the conventional uh life that they might they might live so we try to appeal to the people that uh that want to be irreverent that want to be rogue that want to be part of our revolution
1: all right and eric Wallace, the the founder of uh Left Hand Brewing in Colorado, thanks for coming on the show. Certainly, great to be back out here. All right, so tell us a little bit more about what, what, what Left Hand is and uh, why stout is such an important part of of your beer
5: portfolio. Well, stout's an important part of our portfolio um, because it happened. It wasn't anything that we got into by design. I mean, when we started 20 years ago, we, we started with two beers, a, an ESB and a, and a Scottish Basically, a blonde Scottish ale, and um, it was after a trip to that my partner took to to Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro. He tried a milk stout over there. We'd never seen a milk stout in the U.S. The style basically didn't really exist over here. It was going extinct. And he said, "Oh, I'm going to try this. Try this beer. It's a milk stout." So we started working on recipes and uh, did it draft only one year. Seasonally, and it was a pretty successful in our a little bitty tasting room that we had at the time next year we also put it into bombers twenty two ounce bottles and and even better and then we when we finally got around, i think in two thousand and three, maybe putting it into six packs, it was kind of Katie barred the door all of a sudden we couldn't it was no longer going to be a seasonal people were were raving about this beer we had no idea that a stout would Grow to become over half of our total sales. It, it it it's a beer that people look at it. Most people don't drink stout, but one by one, as we would hand when someone would ask for a light beer at, a, at an event, not making light beers, I would give them the nitro instead or the or the milk stout instead, and prep them talking about flavor, talking about chocolate, talking about coffee. Right? Don't think about that fizzy light stuff that. You, you drink at home or that whoever you live with drinks at home don't think about beer think about flavor and using that approach we were able to start converting all these people that didn't really drink beer so it's it's our entry beer it also covers the whole gamut all the way to hardcore you know beer geeks so it was it was a surprise we didn't do it on purpose we just saw something happening and kind of fed it and it grew into a beast well, that's been a big part of the, the
1: craft beer scene, hasn't it? Is, is, is I think a lot of people grew up looking at crappy macro beer and, and realizing that, wow, there's flavor to it. I know that my wife always liked wine, but now she, she chooses craft beer over wine. And I think that's very cool that Spiegelau is stepping in and really trying to up the game on glassware. And last night, uh, you kind of gave us a tutorial, and uh, you know you, you had the, the, the pine glass. What do you call the pine glass, Matt?
3: Uh, well, we have several terms for it. In our formal tastings, it's referred to as the Joker because it's the glass. That we judge against Uh, I've heard they are called the beer killer And I call it just public enemy number one When it comes to beer service It's just, it's a leftover It's it's an archaic martini shaker That found its place as the default Beer glass service Uh, And you know, it is what it is It's prevalent Um, We're just making baby steps in a long term Program to change people's Acceptance of that as the standard um, And move them into a better direction That's pretty much the goal
1: and with, with Blake, um, Brett, sorry, uh, there's a lot of people here today. I always get the names confused, and you guys know that. Um, Brett Choice from Rogue. Um, does my pint glass really suck? You know, we had some back and forth last night about, you know, whether it's going to make the beer taste better or not. But does my pint glass really suck for beer?
4: Yeah, I think it's kind of like if you've ever flown in first class and then you have to go back to coach on your next flight. It's like that. I mean, you don't know until you experience it. So I never would have thought that the, the traditional pine glass was so inadequate to highlight the, the flavors and aromas of great beers. But certainly uh, now that we've, we've built this beautiful um, stout-specific glass, there's no, there's no going back. So the short answer is uh, yes, the traditional pine glass sucks.
1: You know, I've I've always tried to to have better glassware at, at my pub, Jimmy's Number Forty Three, but but sometimes it's hard. And often uh, customers they look at the pint glass, and at least to them they see value because they know it's sixteen ounces, and 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 a lot of bars with specialty glasses aren't serving a full pint, and that's that's been an issue. But for you, Justin, with Beer Table, you, you were always a, a pioneer in having unique glassware. You know, what what are some of the challenges that you face with that, and how have your customers reacted to it?
2: I mean, certainly there's a pricing issue, but there's also just the issue of like. You know, serving a little six-ounce dainty sherry glass for a taste of something um, that I always thought was really fun and maybe kind of emasculating for some folks, but uh, in a great way. Um, and I, th- I think it's good to just put beer in a different format and make sure that it's in a glass that you can smell from.
1: So, like, Eric, at left hand, you guys have, have a tasting room. Um, you know, What are the types of glass that you serve uh, to, to customers there?
5: Well, it, several years ago, you know, way before... I, I, I read about the, the IPA glass. We'd, we'd made a conscious decision to get away from from the beer killer, um, just because it. it ultimately unsatisfying drinking vessel if you 're really paying attention and we started experimenting it's kind of like just on I mean, with different shapes for different styles I mean we already always had a, a vice beer glass kind of the classic style we had a tall narrow Pilsner that we that we weren 't using in the tasting room but that we had that we sold and we just made a decision look if we really want to speak about quality and walk the walk we 've got to start leading the charge, not differently than what the the original wave of of craft brewers were doing in beer it's like we we need to take it to the next level, so we we um we don't use yeah, we don't use the beer killer anymore at all. Um, Matt came in and was doing one of his seminars and he said, "Hey, I, can you you have some of these the straight sided shaker glasses?" And we had to run around to people's offices and pull them off of shelves and stuff because we don't <laughs> we, we don't use them anymore. We, we really don't we have any. Really I, I had some, I had a couple from a from a brewery I'd visited in in Western North Carolina that I went and I was like, "Yeah, I think I have one or two in my office just for decoration purposes. Purposes. So yeah, we've we've completely eliminated it from what we do.
1: And what about at Rope? Do you have uh, any special glassware in the tasting rooms?
4: Uh, we have some, although I have to confess, we we still do have uh, Public Enemy Number One in in our pubs. But uh, but after this experience, we're we're converted, and, and we're going to change over to a, a more comprehensive glass program. But we do have a, a beautiful pilsner glass that we use for our uh, our Morimoto Imperial Pilsner. So that's a that's a wonderful glass. Certainly the stout glass. And um, now that I've seen the light, uh, we're going to have to convert all the glasses at all of our places. So what is the tasting room like there? I mean, I've never been to Rogue. Our,
1: our good friend Claire Goggins, who was a writer from New York, and then started working for you guys. I was actually in a Japanese restaurant recently, and, and I saw a beer that said Soba. And I was happy to see something other than just a, like a Japanese macro beer, and I realized it was from you guys. So tell us more about these innovative beers you guys are making and your tasting room.
4: We are, Our tasting rooms are... are are various. We have 12 pubs that we own and operate, so they're they're all a little bit different in their in their shape and layout. But fundamentally, they're places where you can go and you can experience all of our beers, 35 different beers on tap at all of our places. So that's the key. Is it's the only place you can go and have access to all the Rogue beers on draft and also experience the Rogue culture in our in our pubs. In terms of the the Soba beer, that's been a fun project. We make three beers in conjunction with Iron Chef Morimoto. Uh, we make a, a black Obi, which is kind of a, a black roasted. Uh, Beer, we make an imperial pilsner and we make the soba ale that you talked about. So that was really uh, the chef and our brewmaster getting together and saying, Hey, how can I take my, my culinary approach and fuse it with beer? So they came up with the idea of using uh, soba or buckwheat in, uh, in the beers, which is a really fun, nutty, roasty beer. I mean
1: that was really exciting for me because I'm so used to going, to, especially in New York. There's so many great sushi restaurants, but they they, they rarely have craft beer. So um, why do you think that more Japanese restaurants don't
4: have uh, craft beer? Yeah, I just think it's the old school way. It's the it's a it's a real shame. As as you mentioned, it's it shouldn't be simply you know, sahi or uh, these traditional Sapporo Japanese beers. I mean, if you have amazing uh, Japanese food and sushi, I don't know why you wouldn't pair it with the more flavorful craft beer. Frankly. So I think it's, it's just tradition. I think that's, that's going to change, and it's changing right now. And what's the name of
1: the, the dark beer you made with Morimoto?
4: Uh, it's called Black Obi. So it's, uh, it's kind of a cousin of the Soba ale made with Soba, but also some darker malts to give it a, a dark flavor, dark color. Matt from Spiegeloud, this, this is a really great glass. I'm picking it up. Let Someone
1: toast me so you can hear the, the, the ring. I mean this sounds like a nice wine glass Something that you would Yes <laughs> I bet you do that a lot don't you You kind of do a lot of
3: It's my ringtone on my phone And
1: I like to toast a lot So I think that having a This might make me want to get A Spiegel out glass mm-hmm. um, But like this was developed for, for stout And it, it's a beautiful glass And uh, y- you'll tell us more about it in the show But what about for other dark beers Like this other Morimoto dark beer from Rogue Would, they, would all dark beers work well
3: in this Or it's really just for stouts Well it was it was developed specifically for stout but we work with inside a vast range of stout so we work with not just uh rogue and left-hand beers um, in our film that will be coming out describing this process eric points out how we use a multitude of dark beers because there's characteristics that are similar so um, the question always persists you know because of there's so many different types of beer sometimes within a, a range including ipa The argument would seem to follow logically that there should be a specific glass for each style of beer. Well... Technically, that's feasible, you know, but practically, it's not. I mean, what we're looking at is creating a alternative that's already light years ahead of the standard. So, if you're going to drink any number of dark beers in this versus whatever else is out there, it's definitely going to be improved. Um, can I say, that it's specifically developed for this particular Morimoto beer? No. Um, will it be better than serving it into a pint or any a thick-walled glass or uh, any glass that's not uh, featuring curvature for the aroma? Yes, it's certainly better. So, so um, I would encourage you to take any dark beer and try it in a stout glass.
1: Well, another thing, another thing I learned last night at the tasting was I'd always, I kind of knew instinctively that a thinner glass, the beer tasted better. But tell us some of the science behind that, because uh, you just you taught me something I'd never knew.
3: Great. Well, this is the fun part. You know, this is where, where, with a partnership with the breweries that we have, finally there's this reckoning where the beer maker makes the beer and the glass maker makes the glass, and there's not, like, the marketing people in the middle building tchotchke and confusing the public. Um, I read a lot of, you know, posts on Facebook where people think they know what they're talking about with respect to glass, and they really don't. It's, it's, it's something that we know about. And thick glass... And you'll see this a lot in posting. How does thick glass not keep beer cold? Um, It's a very counterintuitive suggestion. Um, Yet when you think it through, then, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, as a glass manufacturer, we know glass is an insulating material. That's what it does. And the way it insulates is it hits its equilibrium temperature-wise. So if the glass is thick, it's going to take a longer period of time and more energy to derive that equilibrium. So if you put something cold into a thick glass, that glass is going to literally suck the heat out of the liquid. And when we're talking about beer, that's a bad thing, because when you take the temperature, and I'm I'm telling you we have comparisons where by multiple degrees, within minutes uh, the beer is different, much warmer in a a thicker wall glass. The, The CO2 that would be dissolved in this liquid, in this beer or a soft drink or champagne or anything, will evaporate that much more quickly as it warms up. So the thick glass by definition when we call it the beer killer if it's warming your beer and making it flat it's certainly killing the beer then you add the 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 final element which is lack of curvature so it has no ability to hold the aroma these types of glasses make for warm thick flat beer
1: awesome <laughs> we're in the offices of night night communications a pr firm for Spiegel spiegelhouse we're not at our typical base in roberta's and bushwick so uh, instead of pizza and beer right now we're getting coffee it's the morning but we are going to drink some beers um i don't know what time it is right now um we're going to take a short break when we come back uh matt's actually going to pour for us uh one of the left hand beers into the glass and he's going to talk us talk us through that so hey we'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio
0: which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit greatbrewers.com today. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome
1: back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 in the Good Brew Seal. I'm here with Justin Phillips from Beer Table Pantry, and we're interviewing uh, Spiegelau, uh, Left Hand, and, and Rogue. All right. Justin, uh, you sat in on the uh, Spiegelau Stout Glass tasting last night. What would you think about this, this unique glass and, and the beers that we tried?
2: I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, As we mentioned earlier, I, I'm, I'm a fan of trying different things with different glassware, and I, I generally still approach these things with a lot of skepticism. Um, but it's great to be there and to, and to do the actual side-by-side, to put this next to a tulip and next to a, a, a pine glass and, and really, really see the differences.
1: No, I really had a good time, too, and I have got to meet Eric Wallace, the president and founder of Left Hand Brewing Company. Eric, uh, why don't you go ahead? You're, you're going to pour for us uh, one of your beers. So tell us what you're doing, and, and we can listen on there and, and just talk it through a little bit
5: i have the opener in my hand okay. um, remo- Finally, it's, it's i'm begun. removing the crown yeah it's about time we got to this <laughs> now i'm going to it's our ta- first beer of the show i'm going to take the bottle and i'm going to completely turn it upside down and raise it as high as i can above the glass without making a mess and dump it right in what he's
1: doing is this is his, the nitro milk stout in bottle. And he just poured it in, like kind of force forced it like you would in, before into before the, uh, the Spiegel out stout. So first, tell us about
5: this beer. Like, what's so special about it? Well, the milk stout was was the, the base beer for the nitro. And um, we started nitrogenating kegs back in 2003, 2004. We would just do it the old school way where you just force it over a week or whatever. And... Um, as we as we grew a little bit, we started trying to figure out a way to actually do it more efficiently than just having a bunch of kegs on a on a gas manifold forced carbon uh, carbonating with with a, a blended gas. So we played with all of these different methods, and we got better and better at it because when you mess it up badly one way, you you you've, you fix that, and you keep moving. So we tried it um, several different ways, and that beer really started to take off, the, just a, a nitrogenated draft milk stout. And a couple of our guys um, in, inside the brewery, their package, our packaging managers, said, hey, we want to try to figure out if we can put this in a bottle. I was like, great. So we started working on it, working on it, bought more equipment, bought more of this, bought more of that, and playing around. And they were messing around with widgets and trying all of this different stuff, but that technology still was, was patented or, um, yeah, it was protected. So, so it was like those the Guinness Nitro in cans. Yeah, yeah. It, think, think Smittix, think uh, Old Speckled Hen, all those different beers that you can buy with a little little widget rattling around in it. And I said, well, let's see how close we can get without with, without that. Th- th- they had found, uh, you know, th- we, were, we, were, we were playing with it, but we, we weren't there, and th- the money was flowing out. And finally I said, like, let's be practical. You know, let's see how close we can actually get. So um, we we worked on it for a couple of years. And Do
1: you guys have a patent on it?
5: No, we don't have a patent on it. Um, a patent would require us to tell people how we do it (laughs) and no one's really got there yet so we'll see how long it takes before before someone else can get there it's not that easy and um we're yeah we're not going to announce it to the world yet We're, we're not quite ready for that
1: so why did you guys? So what you did is you did this last end of the tasting too. You, you take the stout glass, you, you hold the nitro bottle upside down, you kind of like let it pour in forcefully. I thought the whole thing was just going
5: to like overflow. Well, if you did that with a, a normal carbonated beer, it, it should overflow. Um, with a with a, a nitrogen carbon dioxide blend, nitrogen's naturally hydrophobic it doesn't go into solution easily and it comes out um pretty quickly and and it it breaks out and what the nitrogen does it gives you nucleation points for the co2 which is why you get that thicker creamier head on the on the beer it um it, it, yeah, it basically gives you a smoother uh, mouthfeel because you don't have that same carbonic bite that carbon dioxide would give you, that tingle, so it's a, a softer experience. And with the Milk Stout, that's already a, a pretty creamy beer, so it just kind of accentuates one of the, the main characteristics of, of the Milk Stout. Um, you
1: guys, at Rogue, do you, I know you guys do the Shakespeare stout and we try the chocolate stout. Do you guys also do a, a nitro stout?
4: Uh, yeah, we do. We, we offer our Shakespeare stout on uh, on nitro in, uh, in kegs. I remember that. That used to be my go-to beer on,
1: on draft for nitro for a long time. Uh, do you think, Matt, do you think that the, with the stout glass, do you think there's a difference between CO2 stouts and, and, and nitro stout, or do you think the glass handles them equally?
3: Uh, fortunately, the glass does handle them equally. Um, this was certainly a, a, a conversation point when we were developing it. Um, I think it was in the in the last workshop when we really brought the the nitrogen in to see um, what it, what it would do, and this profound enhancement of the mouthfeel uh, and just the appearance. And I mean, there was just like we were all wow uh, when we first saw it. How it looks, how it cascades in the glass. So yeah, we're very very happy with. with with how nitrogen uh, presents in this glass.
1: I mean, these are these are really nice glasses, and I, and you, you, we got a couple to take home, and I would love to, to to have these always. So, so what do you do? You're the the top glass guy in beer in the, in the world, and you must go into bars every day and be
3: disappointed. So, what do you do? Do you bring your own glasses when you go out? As a matter of fact, I do. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that when you engage it thoughtfully with, with people that own clubs and bars. I mean, I worked in the restaurant business for a long time. I owned a restaurant for a short period of time. But, I mean, I understand. I, I get what some of the practical issues are. Um, but at the same time, the conversation we like to bring to people like yourself is this idea of this quality equalization across the, the spectrum. So um, if you're going to serve this great beer, why not pour it into great beer glass if you're going to have a brewery and hire the best brewmasters and use the best ingredients why would you not want its final point of conveyance to your customer being the best possible glass rather than the worst so you know i I talk to chefs i'm like like well they're too expensive i'm like well you know you serve arugula instead of iceberg lettuce you know you're not you're serving rack of lamb and you have it on on a, a villaroid plate rather than a paper plate you know you want to save money there's ways to save money so we really just try to say keep your quality equal across what you're trying to do and then it matches your your ethos your operating ethos which is excellence and that's what we bring Brett,
1: you guys at rogue you guys have uh, really set a culture there rogue nation but but tell us about your brewer because he's been with you a long time and he, he must be really important in in
4: and the whole brewery. Yeah, no question. We've had the same brewer, John Meyer, for 25 years. So that's that's pretty special. Uh, John's John's a wonderful guy, a very talented brewer. Uh, he's won over a thousand awards over his 25 years for um, over 60 different styles of beer. So certainly, we're fortunate to have him. And really, the way the way we operate at Rogue is, uh, I don't tell John what to do what kind of beer to make he decides what kind of beer to make what's in it Uh, there's no limit on the uh, amount of hops or malts that he uses he kind of makes it and says here it is and then we figure it's it's our job to figure out how to go out and uh and sell his beers basically
1: and then you guys also, do you grow grain or, or hops or anything like that?
4: Yeah, we do. We have, a, we have our own farms. We grow seven varieties of our own hops at our hop farm. We have two varieties of barley that we grow. We also grow other crops like uh, pumpkin and rye and jalapenos that we also use in our, our beers. And we're also beginning to, uh, to grow some botanicals that we're going to use in our gin um and so we do spirits as well so there's crossover between our, our farming uh into both our spirits and our our beers so
1: like what role does the brewer have in in determining and working with the farms
4: yeah i mean it's, it's john's especially on the the hops there's really john saying these are the hops that i i want to have more access to so uh so john was was critical in in that and then the other the other crops uh, just pop up as we have ideas i mean if uh uh, John looks at the world and says hey I've, I've not done a pumpkin beer before what if we had our own pumpkins wouldn't that be something fun to do so uh, so John was the, the genius behind the beer called Pumpkin Patch Ale where we take our own pumpkins directly from our farm harvest them, drive them to the brewery about an hour away roast them in uh, pizza ovens and throw them right in the brew kettle so it's like the freshest pumpkin beer you can possibly have so it's, it's fun things like that that, uh, that the farm inspires us to do well, oh, that's great. But do you still
1: also have to buy grain and hops from other places as well.
4: Yeah, we do. We're not 100% uh, you know, self sustained That was never that was never the goal, but uh, but the crops have been pretty pretty hardy, so the the hops are now about 40% of our annual hops we grow ourselves and about 15-16% of our annual barley usage we grow ourselves.
1: And what about like, community involvement? So I I know you guys were both important breweries in your states and your regions um you know tell us about some of the things that, that, that you're, you're doing and, and you, how you value yourselves in your community as brewers because you know the old days brewers were often the mayor of their town and we know that uh the wine coupe owner is now the governor of of colorado so why don't you guys weigh in on you know, community involvement the role of
5: breweries uh, in the community strangely enough um, the mayor of our town is a brewer from the uh, uh, local <laughs> brew pub so yes uh that that seems to be a theme um from the very beginning and for me personally I was I grew up as an Air Force brat and then I was in the Air Force for for 12 plus years so I didn't have a hometown and when we decided to live in Longmont this that was going to be our hometown that's where all three of my kids were born we've been there since we, we moved back to the states from Italy in 93 and we wanted to get involved get engaged so we joined the chamber we participated in events we we would donate to, to fundraisers and that's blossomed into we have a a, a guy whose full-time job is our law Large fundraising events and community liaison. Um, a lot of people out there probably have run into him, Josh Goldberg. Yeah. Sounds like a good job. It's a, it's a. I think it's a great job. We basically looked at him, and said, "This job was made for you. Uh, you need to do this job." And so we we run a lot of, of huge fundraisers. For example, um, we took over. we participated in the local Oktoberfest for many years. It was a fundraiser for our our symphony. Um, and they used to run it. Their guild would run it, and we would participate. And as the guild aged and it was a lot of heavy lifting, um, they, they hired a, a, a production company to do this thing. And those guys basically tried to kill the event. They were taking all the cash out, and they weren't leaving any back in our town. And I was... You, you can say gently and, and politely. I was outraged, um, and if the recorder wasn't on, I would use other words. Um, and we took the event over and basically resuscitated it, and we r- ran it last year um, for the for the second time, and. Ironically, it was four days after we were able to return to the brewery and start cleaning up after the massive floods that we had. And we converted this huge local fundraiser into a flood relief fundraiser and party. And uh, a lot of people showed up. We got a lot of support from the community and from local businesses and netted over seventy grand to immediate flood relief for local Meals on Wheels that had been feeding thousands of people. They've provided thousands Thousands of meals for people that had been evacuated from Lyons in the, the local mountain towns and in Longmont and other towns in our area. So, but you guys got lucky, didn't you, during the flood? We took a grazing blow. We, we got away with uh, some, somewhere between 80 and 100 grand worth of damage, I think, in the end. We lost some beer. We lost a lot of outbuildings, our lab. Um, our fence line was completely disappeared basically in places so and there was mud everywhere but a, a couple more inches basically another inch and we would have had water in all three of our main buildings it, like i said we were completely surrounded for uh, for and evacuated for for 4 days so there's there's a there's a story here i know
1: that when there was a tsunami in japan a few years ago our, our friends at hitachino they they were lucky that that they survived and they they converted uh, their bottling system uh they made water bottled water for the community because they had they had a well and they had a bottling system and and you guys were able you survived and you were able to uh, rally for your community so what i'm getting at is what do you think the role of the brewer is and and why is it important that you have local and regional breweries rather than you know having macro ownership or stuff like that
5: beer builds community um, when we opened our tasting room, our idea was create a, a local pub. And if you're going to build community, you gotta you gotta partake, you gotta participate, and you gotta give to receive. And I, I think it's a natural function for a brewery to to get involved and and help and supporting fundraisers we have beer even if even if we're only providing you know two for one or half price beer that's better than you can get going out and buying it you know retail and anything you can do to, to make a contribution you're having a silent auction you want your your people that are bidding to have a couple beers in them right <laughs> and it just makes things work better it loosens people up and it gets them talking to one of them. how many people in your town do you employ We've got ninety now, ninety full-time employees. So it makes you make a difference in your community. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a several million-dollar payroll. So yeah, it, it does make a difference, and we love it when our guys and gals get married and have kids and get a mortgage and buy a house. And you know, they—that's what you want because then, then they're building community at the same time and we're helping helping make that happen.
1: You know when you guys do high fives because it's left hand, do you high five with your right hand or your left <laughs> hand? Let <laughs> <next>, me see <'cause>. left hand high five. All right, let's toast these uh Spiegelau stout glasses. Um, we got Justin Phillips, Matt from Spiegel-Owl, Rogue and left hand. Cool. All right. <laughs> yeah. What,
5: right. what are we drinking before we sign off? Tell us about your beer one more time. Nitro, I think we're gonna have to have a nitro milk stout and I think we're gonna have to cheers with a with a rogue chocolate stout. All right. Well, let's let's take
1: a short break thanks to our sponsors greatpers.com we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio
0: like what you hear so far? support the network and become a member membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably minded businesses that support us to become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today.
1: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're doing a special recording with Left Hand Rogue and Out. And you guys are talking. You just filled up uh, the Spiegelau Stout glass uh with some of the rogue chocolate stout what, what were you saying about that eric
5: we were t- we were talking about how the the glass um and matt can talk technically better about it than i but the glass when you when you cheers with it when it's got beer in it you can actually feel the flex in the glass i mean it's a it's a it's a, a, a a solid liquid is what it is basically that's a full glass and, toast. and it, you can basically feel the bend Not, i wouldn't do it too vigorously because it will, it will break, but they're surprisingly strong and robust. So the joke is if, if you
3: made unbreakable glasses, you'd be out of business, right? Yeah, that's correct. I mentioned that at last night's event. I'm like, Spiegelau is a 500-year-old company from Bavaria, Germany. We make you know, very high grade commercial grade glass. We serve some of the top restaurants and hotels around the world. Um, I said we'd be, wouldn't be in business for five hundred years if we made unbreakable glass, but it's extremely durable. It's dishwasher safe. Um, you know, a place that comes to mind. People are like, oh, it's delicate. Well, I'm like, well, these glasses are being used at uh, both of these breweries. Certainly at Dogfish. Certainly at Sierra Nevada for the IPA. Um, but my friend Chris Black in Denver at the Falling Rock Tap Room comes to mind. Is one of these Rock'em Sock'em craft beer bars that uses Spiegelau. On on a daily basis, and he was one of the original skeptics, you know. But now he puts our logo on his menu. I'm like totally flattered because when I first showed up there, he's looking at me like I have three heads. Now he uses them every day.
1: You also have other, like kind of, I wouldn't say generic, but but typical beer glass styles as well, don't you?
3: Yes. The the, the we started this before we moved into the workshop process and making beer specific styles. We had four glasses of a range of what we called beer classics, and this was a new take on what you would consider a classic shape. So a Hefeweizen glass, as we understand it, uh, to look, but minus all the weight. So we implied this thin glass um, thinking. So our Hefeweizen glass has almost no weight on the sham. When you get a logoed glass from a brewery, it's going to be almost a three-pound piece of glass, uh, a weapon. Uh, We make a tulip glass that is um, beautiful, extremely thin, very, very versatile for Belgian-style ales. But again, it's derivative of a classic shape that people understand. Similar with our lager glass, it's a, it was a you look at a typical German Helles lager glass, this is our twist on it. So they all have a bit of a twist. And then we have uh, one other non-workshop glass called the Tall Pilsner. Uh, it's a huge favorite with people just because it's a flute. Um, it just has beautiful light. It makes lighter beers like cold styles look really, really nice. And then tell us about a few other places around
1: the country, bars, hotels that, that are regularly serving Spiegelau glassware for beer.
3: Here. Um, well, hopefully we're going to go visit one this afternoon. Uh I think of a Michelin three-star restaurant. It, it's not, not just Michelin three-stars, but that's the spectrum from the from the Falling Rock Tap Room in Denver to 11 Madison Park in New York City, uh, which we hope to visit this afternoon because you'll see this unbelievable wine list, and then you'll see a 12-page craft beer list attached to it as well, which didn't exist a couple of years ago. Uh, Gramercy Tavern in New York comes to mind. Uh, the Nomad Hotel, uh, where we hosted our IPA event, All Spiegel the Cosmopolitan Hotel, if you ever I want to go throw some dice in las vegas in a nice place um we do all of the uh, peninsula hotels four seasons places like that i mean yes high end but it's getting broader acceptance because of the beer
1: that's great to know about other places we can get your glassware hey I'm uh, brett uh we're drinking the chocolate stout from rogue you want to tell us a little bit about that beer
4: yeah, sure. Uh, I'm happy to. There's uh, Sebby Bueller on the the bottle. Your, your good friend, our good friend, a long time. Nineteen twenty-year rogue. Uh, the beer, the the base of chocolate stout is our Shakespeare oatmeal stout, and then we take the the Shakespeare oatmeal stout and infuse it with a Dutch chocolate. So the the beer has, as you smell it, you get the a big huge whiff of chocolate, especially in the Spiegelau stout glass. And then as you as you drink the beer, you get the the, the smoothness that comes from the oatmeal. You get the the big malty flavor from the um, from the Shakespeare stout, and then the the chocolate is kind of the finish. You get the, the chocolate at the end, um, which is really the star of the show, is the is the chocolate in this.
1: And then um, Eric and Brett, could you guys just... You know, you're, you're both making stouts at left-hand and rogue. Would you, would you guys care to comment on perhaps stylistic differences that, that are... Like left-hand has a certain style of stout versus rogues?
5: Um, I, we both make quite a, a variety of, of stouts. Um, so I don't know if we can characterize... A, Anything in general. What we say about left hand is we're trying to make complex. Yet balanced beers. So they have a, a great drinkability, whether it's a, a 6% stout or a 6.8% porter or a 10.2% uh, wake up dead imperial stout. I mean, those, that's a wide range of stuff right there. And then we have a smoked imperial porter. We do some barrel aging on a limited basis of, of some of our darker beers also. So, um, we're always striving for the right balance. You know, even though a beer might be really hefty, um, it's, you, a beer's made to drink. And, Brett, what about the the rogue approach? Yeah, I think our approach is is very
4: similar to what Eric described for left-hand. We we also make an imperial stout. We also have a barrel-aged stout. We make a mocha porter. So we've always uh, done a wide range of dark beers. Uh, I think that stouts in general are kind of discriminated against. I think people are are scared of stouts just because of the color oftentimes, especially people that are new to craft. And I just want everyone out there to to not be afraid of of darker beers because oftentimes it's actually the inverse of what you might expect. A darker beer can be smoother, can be more drinkable despite its color than a lighter beer. I mean, an IPA, you could argue, is, is much more bitter typically than a a stout might be so uh you know give stout a chance and, and i also th- want to take the you know the myth away from people only drink stout in in the winter i think stouts uh it's a great year-round style so i drink stouts in the summer as well as in the winter months
1: why do you think people as- associate a, a stout or a nitro stout with that kind of pine glass or english pine glass how do you think th- that developed uh, matt
3: well, it's it's been the historical service. I mean, you know, certainly you go to the UK and you order a style, this is how it's gonna come, often more in this more nonic pint style. Um, you know, it's been the, the tradition. So that's what it is. And again, it, it's not to say that because it's been that way that it's horrible, it's been that way because there wasn't an alternative. Um, now we're just you know, gradually introducing this alternative and trying to raise people's awareness and, and as Brett pointed out, there's so many preconceived notions that people have incorrectly. Um, um, that stout's overly heavy, that it's impenetrable, that it's a seasonal beer. You know, those, those whole conversations need to be dismissed, let alone uh, the glass service question. So it's tradition, but traditions change.
1: And Justin, um, you, you sat in on the release of the Spiegel IPA glass, and, not, and now you're here with the stout glass. Um, do you want to comment on the difference or the experience from your end?
2: Uh, Sure. Yeah, I mean, there are some similarities that you can see between the two uh, in terms of just like the basic inverted cone or whatever you call the base of the stem of this thing. Um, But they they are different, and I think last time I I left, maybe uh, not as convinced as as I am this time. So it's good. Um, You know, I I I I enjoyed it, and you know, I haven't spent the last year putting it into service or anything. But um, um, I'm liking how it's developing, and and I'm, I'm a believer in it now.
1: Justin, one thing I always liked about Beer Table is that I would find beers at your place that I wish I had carried at Jimmy's Number Forty Three. I know your background was you worked for Be United, the importer. What are some uh, uh, European stouts that, that you could recommend to our listeners that are that are hard to get, but
2: that you would serve at Beer Table? Um, European stouts that are hard to get. <laughs> I, mean, that, I actually, off the top of my head, I can't think of too many. I can't believe if, I can't believe if I stump you. The Vinci,
5: the Vinci Stout. Um, from Ducato. Yeah, that's a great one with the with the chili pepper. Really, really nice. Um, Thornbridge. Thornbridge for sure from England
2: um, makes a beautiful uh, Saint Petersburg. It's great. Not super strong. It's about eight percent, but it's a
5: it's a really nice imperial stout. Maybe like De La Senne, Stout Eric. Uh, oh yeah, some yeah, Stout Eric. Yeah, that's they. They De La Sen makes some great beer, um, and and I've actually had some of their beers. I've blended uh, a, a Cantillon that I had with with the, the their stout, and it's really really a cool combination. So. There's a lot, plenty. Yeah, of and I,
1: I think there's a, there's a
5: lot of great Belgian stouts, again, that, that
1: aren't too strong. And um, and also Italy, Berta del Borgo, they have a nice stout, an oyster stout. Um, anything that, that you can think of, Brett, for, for, for stouts besides Rogue and left-hand?
4: Uh, you mean, like, favorite stouts of yeah, mine? from the world or from the country. Uh, I love Bells. Bells makes, to me, um, amazing, amazing stouts. Um, I think the the dogfish, the Worldwide stout. I like that. There's it's so hard to choose, but there's there's some uh, there's some amazing stouts out there. But those are a couple a couple favorites.
1: And I, I also I point people towards a uh, Belgian too. There's I think there's a great kind of Belgian stout tradition. A few years ago, I started realizing that what you guys are saying is true that dark beers can be refreshing. And, and I would do a theme like you know dark beers for summer, and many of them were Belgian stouts. And I'm always amazed when I look at the ABV on some some English stout. It's like the Young's Double Chocolate. It's only like three and a half percent alcohol, so so it is deceptive. I mean, the, on the the other side, I've seen some of the macro macro brands doing like black beers, you know. But there's so many great traditions, Dunkel lagers, and 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 Schwartz beers. So, um, maybe we can change people's per- perception. I think you guys are doing that. I mean, this this chocolate style is very refreshing, and uh, it's nice to sit here and and drink with you guys, your beers, which is one thing we get to do on our show. I've um, got a couple more questions. Um, you know, Left Hand is known for their their milk their nitro milk stout, and it's a far more classical style than rogues. Um, did you guys develop the glass more for a frothy, airy stout like nitro or more robust, inky stouts like rogues? These are some written questions we had. We
3: kind of answered that, but what do you think, Matt, again? Well, it's important to the audience to understand that this was a long process and this involved three separate workshops. We went through a standard, uh, flight of glass from our library and then once we derived a, a, finalist from that, then we got into the handmade prototypes. All of them were, uh, varying degrees and I, and I tell people in, in glass design and the way the, the functionality is conveyed, millimeters or like miles when we're talking about what type of nuance differences beers can present. Um, certainly, uh, uh, Brett and his team, and Eric and his team, gave a great deal of attention uh, through this process, but ultimately, it was about just trying to get the best. For all glass for this vast category. Um, so, you know, we, we touched on this earlier. The idea was to use nitrogen, to use uh, uh, normally carbonated uh, beers in, in the process and, and try to get the
5: best aggregate glass out of the process, which I think we did. Yeah, yeah from dry stouts, sweet stouts, imperial stouts. Yeah. I mean, we, we covered quite you know quite a wide range, including and, and, English from, you know, we did some Young's, I do believe. Yeah. Um, we mixed it. We mixed it up quite a bit to make sure that we were getting in the zone and and uh, trying to be fair, you know, using using uh, yeah six eight eight different breweries beers probably through the process. So we like used that. Use Anderson Valley. Yeah. So we tried to make it not
4: about left or about robo. was really how do we build the best stout glass? to kind of encompass the whole universe of stout. So that was that was the mission. I think we. Did a good job
5: of uh, accomplishing some, that. some Breck and some Deschutes, mm-hmm. and you mentioned uh, Youngs. We, we had, had, some, had quite a ride, quite a range.
3: Some old Rasputin. Yep,
5: yep. That's a good one.
1: Haven't had that in a while. That also comes on nitro too, doesn't it? Sometimes. Yep, it does. Yeah, on draft. So, um, since you guys are here in New York City, um, what are some places you're looking forward to trying? You know, there's great food in New York and bars. Um, I'm sure I, Sarah, you can say, if you've got an itinerary, I know you guys, you guys are on a tight leash. First of all, thanks for our sponsor, greatbrewers.com. And I know they're taking you around the city. You're, gonna, you're meeting with media. But what, what are some of the places you'd really
5: like to try uh, on your own in New York? And, Sarah, you can weigh in, too, if you want. We've, um, I know we're going to Top Ops this evening, and we are, um, we're going to go to the Jeffrey... Later this evening so that we can close it down in style um, We were at the Ginger Man yesterday um, We were also at Stout for the, for the event that you guys were at um, You've got something at the Ginger Man tonight Yeah,
4: we're at the Ginger Man tonight uh, I had two pieces of great pizza last night About 1 o'clock $2.50 for two pieces of pizza Are you kidding me? It was unbelievable But for me, I love New York If I could have like three dinners a night, I would um, Morimoto has a restaurant here, which I, I love um, We're talking about maybe going to Momofuku tonight um, I'm excited to go to Love Mass Park. I've never been there before, but heard a lot about it. So, uh, the food scene here, as you guys know, is is unbelievable.
1: And Justin, you as as a owner of a great place in New York, what are some places you recommend to them that are off the beaten path where they could get good food and good beer?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, new stuff that you could check out. Definitely, the Gotham Market um, is interesting, and there are a lot of great restaurants that have sort of like a second location. And Cannibals over there that's that's a good one. Um, have to think for a second about other ideas I mean, they, come back and to cannibal me and cannibal right yeah right
3: near our showroom and it's great because i've got you know eatley and Vieira across the street we've got nomad we got 11 madison park and cannibal and Resto all within a stone's throw of when i'm here for work so it's great i love
1: that and i'm, I'm going to pitch for the lower east side if you guys are here right now there's seven uh, east village lower east side bars doing liquid lent inspired by the blogger that live for 40 days on beer alone. Uh, there's a couple great places to try out. First, a big shout out to Malton Mold in the Lower East Side. He's got a great little shop. It's a bottle shop and grocery store. He's doing tastings for the rest of Lent. Next door to him is Eastwood, another great little beer bar restaurant on Avenue C. There's ABC Beer Company. Again, it's a hybrid where there's a shop in front and a bar in the back, and they always have food and classes. So those are three really great places. And uh, Also, my place, Jimmy's Number 43, they've always got you know some good beers on Tap and food. So um, it's really great having you guys here. I really appreciate it. Thanks to our sponsors, com, who you guys know and actually distributes uh, Left Hand and Rogue in, in, in much of, of the country. Um, thanks again, Justin Phillips from uh, Beer Table. Looking forward to exciting news on the, on the horizon with you. Matt from Sapigalau, Brett from Rogue, and, and Eric from Left Hand. Thanks for joining me. Thanks to our producers, uh, Maggie Sidon and Justin Kennedy, and our engineer and producer, uh, Jack Kinsley. We'll see you next time on Beer.